Hello, my name is Becky Carlson, and I am the Fearless Coach, a platform and podcast talking about some of the toughest issues today in college athletics that realistically very few want to talk about. And this week we're discussing one of the most talked about issues in women's college athletics, and that's the medical care and athletic training support. Now, you may have read about this issue in other articles, but it's one that many female coaches and actually male coaches of female sports are currently struggling with. Now, I've spoken before and written on these issues of disparity in athletic medical care between genders. And no one in the business has to be around very long or be a genius to recognize that gender bias and resources and treatment at a vast number of institutions actually exists. And it's no secret that football and basketball athletes are offered far more resources and top-notch care than their non-revenue sport counterparts. That's a larger, well-known issue, and if you coach in women's athletics, then perhaps the one I'm going to speak about today concerning a contrast in the way we view pain and injury for females compared to male athletes may sound familiar. If you've been following any of the cases of female coaches that have or are actively being investigated, one of the most frequent complaints that is showing up today in student-athlete feedback is athletic training and medical treatment. And I'm not talking about the athletes directly scrutinizing athletic departments and athletic training for poor care in their evaluations although I'm sure that feedback is alive and well, but I'm more so talking about performing, poor performing athletic training departments where their ineptitude is costing coaches their jobs. Just like the complaint against Sylvia Hatchell at UNC and Nebraska's Rhonda Ravel uh, for softball, both were cited in their reports for allegedly forcing athletes to play injured. Now, for the general public, they read or hear this kind of accusation and have a tendency to, to grab onto it and refuse to let it go when they envision vision coaches are forcing their athletes to play through injury. For someone as a general member of the non-athletic public, when you hear this, and rightfully so, it may automatically make you angry. So the colors of this conversation then flow in to paint this awful picture of this abusive coach, where we imagine, we imagine a menacing individual hovering over an athlete with a broken leg, shouting at them to just do one more sprint. This podcast, like many others, is not about defending those coaches who are doing it wrong, but to illuminate you to the risk factors and realities that coaches are up against who are doing it right. I think we have to start being more objective about this claim and looking at it with a deeper lens to understand the existing cultures in athletic training departments and what is creating this sharp divide between the athlete's perspective, the coaches, the athletic trainers, and the truth. I'm speaking to you now as the fearless coach who who lives through this day by day and as an active collector and listener to the coaches in our industry that share these struggles. Athletic training is a huge issue for many reasons. We're talking about the people who are responsible for the care of our athletes and the team of people who work to put our athletes back out onto the field, but also the ones who support them during their time off the field, be it rehab or on the sidelines. From a legal standpoint, the landscape in the NCAA and so many other places are raining down with so many new provisions that sports medicine departments are feeling that weight. However, instead of collectively attacking this as institutions and getting all the voices in the room to discuss how these mandates from the powers that be affect us all as a group, We instead frantically adopt policy without changing any of our behaviors and habits and are shocked when suddenly we're operating solely based on liability of student athlete as opposed to their safety. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're now operating on liability rather than safety. Basically, more athletic training departments are functioning with the premise 
that they need to do whatever they can to avoid being sued, which means creating mountains of policies with zero to little communication, nor any training, new training of their coaches within their departments. Remember, policies are only as strong as those who are carrying them out. Now, to be fair, where mental health support is lacking at institutions, both coaches and athletic trainers are bearing the brunt of this mental health epidemic. When coaches are dismissed from the equation, entirely due to a perceived conflict of interest we get to this funny and kind of terrifying place where instead of taping ankles administering stem treatments or preparing ice bags our athletic trainers many of them are now counselors but they're unqualified counselors on top of this the athletic trainer is if they're not managed properly the first pass through for athlete dissatisfaction with their coaches happens to be the at and this is all within the confines of the athletic, athletic training or treatment room. This now creates this camaraderie between the athletic trainer and the athlete where the environment slowly becomes one of expectation for physical healing, but now also emotional healing. This is actually one of the main builders of the barriers that start to pop up between athlete and coach. And then suddenly your once communicative and open athlete or athletes are no longer seeking you out as a coach and you're viewed more as someone to be cautious or or leery of. This is blistering and bruising to the coach-athlete relationship as the athletic training department attempts to feel its way through this reactively. Now, before you go there, I'm not saying athletic trainers are not fit to be a point of contact for a resource. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they should not be the only resource because professionally, it's absolutely not their area. Again, where there's a lack of leadership in defining roles and that message of roles isn't being repeated over and over again for the good of the organization, this is where the lines get blurred, fear takes over because departments feel too thinly spread and crossover becomes too much to manage. This is, this is typical. I hear this all the time from my coaches and it is playing an incredibly pivotal role on why you're seeing the medical and AT claims pop up so frequently in these public letters or investigations against coaches. Now, when the general public thinks of athletic trainers, they think of professionals, full-time staffs, like the ones they see on Monday Night Football catering to the professional players. And they think, you know, surely these are professionals that are charged with taking care of the athletes. This is incorrect. Now, what I want you to remember is that 66% of the NCAA is Division II and III, 66%. The majority of athletic training personnel are students assigned to these teams. And those are assigned to non-revenue sports, are commonly fresh out of college or just starting without a degree in athletic training and without degrees in mental health or counseling. They're simply not equipped, nor it is appropriate for them to be handling the athletes in this way. But guess what? They're doing it anyway because leadership isn't explaining how this epidemic is to be addressed. So as a casualty of poor leadership and reactivity, the inexperienced athletic trainer oversteps their bounds, becomes too personally involved, and suddenly it becomes athlete and AT versus coach. Now this creates a new kind of barrier and, and a shelter almost for the athlete that actually cripples coaches in their journeys to help the athletes grow. What do I mean by this barrier? Adversity is part of sport. Overcoming challenges, pushing athletes to operate on the edges of their ability isn't an overnight process and it never will be. Growth from freshman year to senior year takes patience, and coaches know this. Now, here's where it gets sticky 
And here's also where I would bet everything I own that this is at the core of more than half the cases I hear about where female coaches are being accused of interfering or I have air quotes up, forcing athletes to play injured. Let's get this straight. There is a huge difference between forcing an athlete who is genuinely injured to play and the act of encouraging an athlete who is experiencing skill or physical challenges to learn more about their own limitations and what they are capable of. The conflict here is where the line of encouragement ends and force begins. This is often where the athletic trainer's experience level or experience as an athlete, if any, weighs heavily into the mix. Just so you're aware, in today's college athletic environments, it's virtually impossible to play an injured athlete who is rendered out. There are mandatory documented injury reports that list whether or not an athlete is practice, strength and conditioning, or game ready. This is what every Tom, Dick, and Harry needs to understand when you get your panties in a bunch overhearing that an athlete was, quote, pressured to compete through injury. You need to really dissect and understand more about the actual process before you go condemning the coach. Coaches at institutions who are following protocol and doing it right do not have the option to play injured kids. So where in the world is this accusation coming from? 10 years ago, I could pass an athlete in the hallway and ask them how they were doing, whether it was physically or mentally. Today, coaches are being discouraged from even discussing an injury with an athlete because it's quite possible they could be seen as coercive or overstepping. What is happening now is that the relationship that athletic trainers are developing goes beyond their need as physical healers. But I'm going to take it a step further and address the prevalent yet natural tendency our athletic trainers possess in wanting to protect female athletes when it comes to adversity with a coach and especially when it comes to adversity with a strong female coach. And I'm talking about this because I've experienced it firsthand. Here I am, a strong female coach with a loud voice, coaching up and down the field, holding my athletes accountable, using a demanding and intense tone. For athletic trainers who have never been coached or led by a strong female, this can lead to all kinds of assumptions and mistrust, which causes them to err on the side of believing that they must protect the athlete. You're seeing so much more of this with female coaches because there's absolutely no recognition or true understanding of the issue in sports medicine that gender bias is alive and well. And I want to give you an example. I visited a women's college lacrosse practice recently. A female athlete was tired after a tough run that involved cardio for the entire team. She had to catch her breath, which we all do in sports. It's normal when your heart beats and your blood is pumping and you're, 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 you need oxygen. Three ATs rushed to her side as the coach attempted to move toward the athlete. Now, the athlete was just fine, just a little winded, but the natural reaction was to refuse to let that female athlete struggle or even to allow her a moment to recognize that she was operating on her edges or to understand the difference between her body needing actual medical attention and her body simply coming down from a hard workout. Now, in contrast, I visited a men's lacrosse practice and the practice was similar for conditioning, but... In the middle of practice, there was a pretty big collision amongst two male players. Both of them got up after walking around, getting their bearings after a few moments, and they continued to insert themselves into play. One looked a little off balance at first because his shin collided with the other athlete, but it was incidental contact. The two ATs on that sidelines that day, neither of them moved. Neither of them set foot on the field. There was no effort to assess. There was nothing but the expectation that the male athletes could manage their pain accordingly and return to play if i could count the number of times in 12 years of coaching 
and coaching a full contact sport that athletic trainers have pulled my female athletes from competition for basic contact or simple challenges and sessions of conditioning, this podcast would literally run into hours. Am I advocating that we ignore female athletes the same way we ignore male athletes when it comes to adversity and physical ailment? Absolutely not. What I am advocating for is a general effort of our athletic system to become aware of how we are robbing our female athletes of not just quality care, but also of their autonomy over their bodies based on the sheer instinct to protect them in a way we never rush to protect male athletes. Now, since I'm not an expert, and I'm simply speaking for those in my fearless network who struggle with these issues and cannot talk about them publicly, I want to set your mind at ease that what I'm about to say does have some factual experts who are already in this space advocating for a better understanding of how we can manage athlete welfare equally and protect our athletes with reasonable protocol and measures. My good friend Nancy Hogshead Maycart is my expert on the cast today, and I'll let Nancy run down her incredible resume as an advocate and one of my personal heroes. So you can take it away, Nancy. I'll be the last one standing, two hands in the air, I'm a champion. You'll be looking Hello. My name is Nancy Hogshead Makar, and in addition to being a great friend of Becky Carlson's, I'm also a 1984 Olympic champion. I was world-class for eight years prior to the 84 games. I made the 80 team, but we didn't get to go. I'm now a civil rights lawyer. I run an organization called Champion Women, and we provide legal advocacy for girls and women in sports. And now you see why Becky and I are such good friends. So she wanted me to talk today about bodily autonomy. And I'm going to talk from two perspectives. One is the coach's perspective and the athlete's perspective. One of the best things that an athlete can learn is is to really know their own body and to know what the parameters parameters of their body are and to appreciate their body and not be at war with it. So what do I mean by that? You've all heard the expression, no pain, no gain. Ah, the good old no pain, no gain. I personally dislike that expression, Nancy. I cannot stand that expression. I think it does a world of damage. So in my athletic career, as I said, I was world-class for eight years from age 14 to age 22. And after the age of 16, I never got injured. And is it because I have some unique body that just does not get injured, that can handle swimming 800 laps a day, plus lifting weights, plus running at least three workouts a day? Can I handle that and not get injured? No. It's because I knew where the border was, where the line was. And Nancy, I love that you just said that because that is one of the biggest challenges of today where it's like we're not allowing our female athletes to find their own borders. So can you talk about the the two kinds of pain for our listeners? So first of all, there are two different kinds of pain. Becky coaches rugby, and uh, so all of her athletes will know this one well. There are two kinds of injuries. One kind of injury is where somebody gets hit the wrong way or they fall the wrong way, and it's just one of those accidental 
injuries that you really can't help. Somebody crashes into your shoulder and it breaks your collarbone. Yeah, there's really nothing. It just happens, right? It's just part of playing rugby. Uh, In swimming, believe it or not, we do get injured. So imagine how fast that the arm is like whipping around when when somebody's doing their stroke in you you swim sort of in a circle in a lane and when somebody's passing you in this lane beside you and they're going close to you the arms will hit and usually you got a broken arm a year roughly a broken hand or something so it just happens right okay so that kind of injury i'm not talking about i'm talking about the kind of injury or the kind of sickness that is really a slow train coming and being able to tell where that line is. I like to say that every athlete, whether or not you're a weekend athlete, whether or not you're um, a high school athlete, uh, Division Three, Division One, or Olympic athlete, they all are on the cusp of getting injured all the time. It's, it's just that much more important to, to sort of know where that line is. So Nancy, as somebody who trained as an Olympian, you know, there had to be some type of inner monologue that was always going on. Forget the coaches for a second. What was your inner monologue saying to you when you were training in these environments? I was, when I was younger, I subscribed to this idea of no pain, no gain. And I was really, my voice in my head was pretty mean to my body. Like, come on, why can't you do this? Let's harder, 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 harder. There was never a thank you. There was never an appreciation. So my shoulder hurt and I was mad at myself for my shoulder hurting and I thought no pain, no gain. In order for me to continue to be world class, I had to push through it and I thought that's sort of what I was supposed to do. Sure enough, I ended up with my arm with tendonitis, an arm my arm in a sling, and I did not win that nationals. And the final results were printed out on a sheet, and I wanted there to be an asterisk after my name to say, like, really, I was the best swimmer. And my, my shoulder gave out on me, but as somebody took the results sheet, and it left my hands, and it went away, you, you did not have an asterisk. The truth, I did not win. So, Nancy, pushing yourself beyond your limits didn't pay off. But as it was considered a failure, it, it, that lesson has clearly stuck with you all these years. And is it safe to say that that failure and being granted your autonomy to make that decision to compete taught you about your body? And that was a great lesson for me in failing to recognize that only I could have prevented that. Nobody else no no coach, no trainer, no parent, no doctor, nobody. I knew that that was coming. The more I got to socialize and get to know other very elite athletes, the more I saw that the best athletes baby their bodies. They take wonderful care of it. They eat really well. They get enough sleep. Um, I always say part of training is resting. So for athletes out there, I'm going to talk to the athlete, it is your body and you are going to have it for the rest of your life. I am 58 years old now and learning that lesson has been invaluable to me, you know, the last 40 years. And you actually walked right into my next question about later in life and how this control and understanding of your body as a female athlete on a deeper level 
um, how, how valuable it is. Can you give me an example of how this has become a staple in your life after being an athlete? I detected the smallest breast cancer lump that is possible. It was 1.2 centimeters. Uh, my doctor said that he had never had somebody who found a lump that was smaller. Like a mammogram can find them smaller, but you know, when you feel around, you can't really feel that. And I chalk it up 100% to really knowing my body and appreciating my body. And also to all those thousands of people that wear the t-shirts that say, save the tatas and remind everybody to do the buddy check to, to know your own breasts and, and uh, what kinds of, of, uh, of lumps and what's unusual for you. Nancy, that's incredible and probably something that had the potential to change your life in a very different way had you not known that. And I, I want to go back to your point about the relationship you were able to have with your body and why that's so important that no one was standing over you making those decisions for you without your input. So let's go back to the lesson. Let's go back to me age 16 to 22 and talk about the kind of relationship that you want with your body. And this applies to both sickness and injury is when something feels on a scale of one to 10, like a two, you need to address it right then, a two. Don't wait until it really hurts, right? Right. So there's some kinds of pain that there's no limit to, like when you're doing sprints or, you know, it feels like every cell in your body needs oxygen. There's no limit to that kind of pain. All right. So there's no limit to that kind of pain, but there really is a limit to how much breaststroke that your knees can do. It's a breaststroke is a weird movement for a knee to be in. There was only so many shoulder rotations. So I would have to tell my coach, hey, you know, give me a kick set to do, or I'll do a one arm stroke or whatever I need to do. And for a while, my coach used to yell at me when that would happen. And he would start saying the same kinds of things that I would tell myself that were kind of mean. But what I knew that I knew that I knew is that I was either going to be on that victory stand or I wasn't. If I was not going to be on the stand because I was lazy or because I really hadn't worked very worked as hard as I possibly could have, then then it would be my responsibility and and I would bear the brunt of that. But it was not going to be because somebody else convinced me to injure myself. So Nancy, given my topic today, which you have so graciously and professionally supplemented, my focus has been the sad state of the removal by the institution of our female athletes autonomy over their own bodies out of kind of this litigious type of triaging and i'm not advocating that we ignore athletic trainers or cut them out i think they're very very important but but more so for the athletes to take their power back in understanding their own bodies and work from there against adversity both physical and mental can you please give our athletes some advice and maybe our coaches out there some advice to share with their athletes about how to take that power back? Um, really be nice to yourself. You know, you've only got one body. You know, it really does try. Think of like if your body had a voice, what would it say to you? You know, we put it through so much in a day. I, I swam the best when I felt the best about myself when I felt really secure about my abilities and my body and my place in the world. 
my sense of being loved in the world. And that's what I wish for you, that you get from your sports career a sense of bodily autonomy that only you will ever know. And only you will be able to tap into the source of your beautiful body, your amazing body, uh, and whatever your dreams and your goals are, that you and your body have to go through it as teammates, not as adversaries. All right, everybody, I, I hear all about Coach Carlson's athletes from her. And I just want you to know that she just loves you very much. She really, really cares about you. But I bet she is intense. (laughs) I've got to come to work out someday. All right, everybody. That's my best. (laughs) Nancy, you never give anything but your best. And I'm absolutely honored to have you on. Thank you so much. And now, fearless coaches, if you're like me and you listen to Nancy just now, there's got to be some type of revelation in your mind or at least a second thought to our approach when it comes to our athletes' autonomy over their bodies. What I'm trying to tell you is that when we deny our female athletes the opportunity to understand and know their bodies better, and we restrict them in ways that we would never restrict our male athletes, we are failing them. We are giving them a list of reasons they are not physically capable of succeeding while the males are free to make that choice. Instead of our answer being, it's okay to try, see how you feel, we're telling our female athletes to sit out entirely, not out of safety, but remember out of liability because too many inherently view females as more fragile. When coaches see this day after day, week after week, season after season, at the same time they are working to preach mental toughness and encouraging athletes to develop good habits to withstand adversity, both physical and emotional, these two messages are wildly conflicting. And it's no wonder we're sending women out into the professional world unequipped to advocate for their salaries, their visibility, and the space that they deserve to take up. Our practice of denying our female athletes autonomy over their own bodies is alive and well, but think about this for a moment. College is the last stop in academia before the real world. When a female athlete has to look at an athletic trainer and ask what they're capable of, they are asking for permission instead of being shown how to listen to their own body. Years down the road when their bodies are changing and they visit the doctor's office to be told they have stage four breast cancer and the doctor tells them they have six months to live, are we building the athletes who believe six months is the maximum and they give in or are we building the female athlete who will look at that doctor and say that's only a number, a limitation, I don't believe in those. I sure hope it's the latter, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm Becky Carlson. Until next time, be fearless.